Hello, people of Earth. This is Tesco with Rip Kenny and Trap Jesus, and you're listening to the uh, Human Music Podcast. Woo! Hmm. Human Music Podcast. I like it. I read a really interesting article, um, which I thought was applicable to music. And I'm sure you guys have felt both ends of the spectrum before. Um, but it was an article post on, well, by Mark Manson, the author of The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. And the article was called uh, The Feedback Loop from Hell. And he goes over basically this idea how we as humans have this, have the, have the conscious capability to, to hate something about ourselves and then hate that we're hating ourselves and it's this feedback loop from hell where you're feeling guilty about feeling guilty and that builds on top of it and it just spirals out of control and he goes into um this idea of if you're chasing something or if you're feeling guilty or whatever there's this implication that you're lacking something. And so the more you try to be happy, let's say, the more you're reinforcing this fact that you're not happy and that you need to chase happiness. And he brought up a really interesting point where he was like, doesn't it seem how the people that put in the least amount of effort or just cruise through life seem to get the best results sometimes? And I do find truth in this because I know anytime I've really tried to like wedge in an idea forcefully and get it to conform to reality um it just it doesn't turn out that way but when you sit down and just write a song and you come in with that mindset of anything goes or if you guys have ever done like ghost producing for people it's like as soon as you're not attached to your song you don't give a fuck it turns out amazing yeah what up with that attachments a beast man and you you brought up the word trying a bunch and that's a word i've like really worked to get out of my vocabulary along with uh, a lot of other words too that that i found were unhelpful and trying when i realized that when i put it in the past tense like oh i tried to do that you know oh i will try to do that you put it in the past tense i tried to do that means that shit did not get done mm-hmm. so if i'm going to try to do something like, I don't try to make music. I sit down to make music. It might be good. It might be bad. But trying actually has nothing to do with it. That's a very good point, actually. Because you're you're almost setting the standard that it might not get done and probably won't get done. You'll try to do it, but... It's leaving the door open for not actually doing something. I'll try to make it to your birthday party. Yeah, dude, that's actually so true. Anytime, and I'm guilty of this too. Someone asked me to do something, be like, oh yeah, I'll try to get to that for sure. No, I'll definitely try to get to that. It's like, yeah, it's probably 30% chance I get to that. Yeah. I, there's a 30% chance that I will try to do it. <laughs> right. You look at your to-do list and you're like, oh, nope, tried. Yeah. Yeah. I, do, I tried I, to give a fuck and then I just didn't. <laughs> I do definitely agree with you though on the like, when it's not your music, it's so like mixing a record for someone else is the easiest math and engineering problem for someone that has experience with those tools ever. You're like, yep, need to do this. That's good. Need to do this. That's good. Need to do this. That's good. Reference this. Great. Okay. This sounds good. Yep. We're done. Like 
never done that with my own music ever not even close dude i'm like no this little thing is like not quite there and like i gotta tweak it endlessly totally uh, and it drastically affects the quality of the final product mm-hmm. and um i feel like a lot of people are struggling through this where they they think more effort equals better result and it's it's not like that the saying that songs don't get finished they get abandoned really rings true so louder every year the more you produce mm-hmm. yeah and especially the more you get better at producing the more you realize how much better you can still get at producing like you take one step and realize there's 10 more steps per step you take um there's a, a really well-known and renowned uh mixing engineer out of atlanta his name's amon jackson shout outs to aj on the buttons and he told me this thing when I was taking a class from him in his studio. He said, every three months, even after 25 years, I get better. I can get noticeably better reliably every three months. I can listen to a three-month-old mix and be like, yeah, I could have done that a little better now that I know. And it took this huge weight off my shoulders. And being able to pass that on to the producers I'm talking to and my students has been really helpful to so many people because like there isn't some magical point two months away that you're not getting to consistently or you're just going to be a good mixing engineer now it is a never-ending rabbit hole that you will always be falling down enjoy the fall because even if you speed up your ability to learn and apply these new techniques the technology is going to change some of that's going to become irrelevant and something even better than what you just learned is going to come out next week so don't worry about knowing it all figure out what you can learn and apply and retain and be prepared to do that until you die yeah i mean like i that's a concept that i relate to as well like um in you know, there's a lot of big name artists that will tell you like, I thought when I got to this level that I would be like, fuck yeah, I made it. I'm, I'm there. I'm so happy with myself. That day never comes. That day never comes. You always are like, yep, I did that. What's bigger? What's bigger? I gotta, I gotta get the next thing. And we're all, we all fall victim to that with our own music. Like you release that song that you were so proud of. And then like a month later, you're like, you, you, you don't feel good about that song still at all. You're just like, yeah, whatever that happened. All right, how can I make the next hit? Mm-hmm. And like, if you never actually stop to appreciate the amount of work that you put in to get to where you are and appreciate the work that you are doing, like you're, you're just, you're going to burn out because you're never actually going to feel the, the, like the, what's the word that I'm looking for? You're never going to feel that like satisfaction. Yeah. Kind of satisfaction, but it's, it's like the accomplishment of the intrinsic motivation mm-hmm. and it has to happen like within you first, you can't look for external factors to validate the work that you've put in because that's a never ending cycle of, I need a higher external factor, right? You get to 10,000 followers on Instagram. You're like, Oh wait, there's people that have 10 billion followers or whatever the fuck you're like, I'm still not there. Like you have to, you have to realize that like, like you said, 
always a work in progress and you still have to be very happy with the extraordinarily large amount of work that you put in to get to where you are in order to like be happy continuing to do that. Otherwise it's like empty. It's all up. Yeah, man. Like totally. you, you, you talk about getting there, but there is no there. There literally is no there. You're always right here. It's always right now. And you can always just work to improve on where you were yesterday. And that's all that really matters. Like I, I heard this quote from Alan Iverson, who's like, I don't practice so I can get better than you. I just practice so I can get better than me yesterday. That's the way to be. There's just way too many factors. I mean, sure, maybe up to your 20s, the factors are a bit more limited and you can compare yourself with with people and it's a bit more of a level playing field not really but kind of but by the time you get like I mean even now where I am in life at 20 coming up on 24 and I'm sure you guys especially can relate boomers not um (laughs) there's just so many unique circumstances that happen to you that it's just like you can't play this comparison game with other people anymore and it's like you realize you only are in competition with yourself. And I think too, that can be a pretty deep rabbit hole to get down. Like Evan, when you were talking about releasing, I think a big part of it is because from our perspective, well, first off the audience, they just see this beautiful sculpture, but you're looking at it from the back and you see all the scaffolding and the duct tape and all the like Play-Doh keeping it together and all that crap. And it's just like, man, This is so horrendous, but nobody's seeing it. They're seeing just the fresh view for the first time. And it's really hard to stay neutral to that when you've heard it a million times in a way worse state. Yeah. Yeah. You talked about comparison a lot. I've heard the the quote, comparison is the thief of joy. Mm. And amen to that shit. For sure. Where was this conversation like six hours ago when I was feeling like against the world, like I was never going to fucking get it. Uh, Waiting for you to intrinsically cheer yourself up and then, uh, and then have a fun combo with your buddies. (laughs) Yeah. That's, that's really the gist of it. Fun combos with your buddies will, will definitely fix your, uh, in, uh, your abilities. Very, very, non-consequential thoughts about your own insufficiencies <laughs> time is just an illusion you had that thought because you knew we were going to talk about it later yeah you're right i'm psychic for sure <laughs> the lord works in mysterious ways i should know hit up hit up that link uh down below to get your psychic consultation from evan yeah amen um i read uh bike tires Season uh, presets. Uh, I read uh, uh, sweaty helmets. Yeah, <laughs> mostly. Um, I got a, a psychic shop set up here in in Bend. Um, bring bring by your used spots. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was about to go so deep on that. And I was like, I can't even go there. The uh, that's okay. Rides. We're we're already in a lot of rabbit holes at once. You know, if any of them just happen to have a bottom, cool. <laughs> right. 
Um, you know, the part about rock bottom is people think it's a bad place to be. It's like, nah, you finally stopped falling. Congratulations. Now you have a place that. to stand and you know which way's up. There, There's always a deeper bottom, I feel. I think rock bottom can be relative. Yeah, that's like, why Shit can always get worse. So when you feel like you've hit rock bottom, it's actually like a time to be grateful because I think that's when like... Well, so from what I understand it and from lectures I've listened to, it's like it is painful for us and we have dopamine preservation systems to attach to these beliefs that we hold because it's how we navigate the world. And I guess maybe you could pull this analogy to producing, but it's like our brains, you know, come up with this this sort of logic to to comprehend the world. And when that's under attack, it becomes very painful. And so you have to get to the situation where you've fallen so low that holding on to that belief gives you less dopamine than just killing the ego and having it be reborn as the Phoenix. Um, there's also a really good quote in fight club that, um, I heard this week that I've really been liking especially because I'm always on like a self-improvement kick and always looking for the next thing and always in competition with yourself, right? But there's a quote in Fight Club where it's like, uh, self-improvement isn't the answer, it's self-destruction. And I Yo, like he that. He says self-improvement is masturbation. Oh, word, <laughs> word. Shouts to Brad Pitt. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to Tyler Durden. But um, no, the quote is real because I think we talked about this in an episode or two ago where it's like the ego never dies. It's reborn like the phoenix. And um, I mean, hell, my producing philosophy is kind of like that. And I find the three-month mark, like you said, Luke, is like that sweet spot where it's like, approximately every three months I've killed off a bunch of techniques that I've been relying on and I've adopted new techniques. And it's, it's like the, the, the crucial stuff is sort of like the core of the planet. It's got the most gravitational pull and it's pulling everything else towards it. And maybe some of that stuff flies back out into space, but it's like the stuff closest to the core always not always, you know, maybe there's an asteroid crashes into your little tiny planet and it gets totally obliterated and you need to rebuild from scratch. I've been through phases like that where I've adopted like horrible habits and had to undo stuff. But yeah, I feel like generally that three month mark, it's like I'm not the same person or I'm not doing the same stuff producing wise. I mean, yeah, I'm not even the same person I was three months ago. Yeah. Realistically. True. On a, on a related note to that topic, do you guys ever find it funny that like, as you get better at producing the, the split of like, it used to be like 10% of my songwriting process was coming up with an idea. And then 90% was trying to force things that I thought would work onto that idea and like make that idea that was probably just okay or good into something that's amazing and now 90 percent of my time is actually just trying to get an idea that's great and then once i actually do get that great idea it only takes 10 percent to get it to like what i would call a final product mm -hmm. in the like in the amount of time say i have a 16 hour day working on music probably eight to ten hours of that are like me just experimenting and trying to come up with ideas that are, you know, I would deem like good enough to, to be remarkable. And then like 
actually getting those ideas to the finish line takes less and less time as you get better, but then you just spend more and more time trying to come up with an idea that impresses yourself can sense like all the other stuff you've done before is like, not that impressive I, anymore. I think that's healthy. You know, I, I think that's hilarious though. Cause it's like, it almost seems to me like I spin my wheels more, but it's, I think it's, I think it's simpler than that. It's just like, I've raised the bar for my level mm-hmm. of idea that I deem worthy to turn into a full song. So it just takes longer to get to that point. And then like the additional skills that you've gained over the years, make getting that idea to a final product way quicker. You know, See, I think that makes perfect sense actually, because, and we talked about this before where it's like, you can stay confined within the genre or you can, break out and start doing unique stuff and when you compare the type of music you were making as tectonic let's say compared to now it's like the music was good it was listenable it was danceable it was well mixed and produced but it was also very much house or very much dubstep or whatever it was and i feel like now because mixing really at least the way i approach it I have a set process that gets me 80, 90% of the way there every single time reliably. And I can write an idea out in three hours and have it done and playable, playable quality by tonight if I had to. But it's like when you get to that certain point, like the stuff you're making now is, is really unique. You know, there's not a lot of artists that have that sound versus like, the tectonic sound it was a bit more in line with like the genre yeah. norms yeah it was like me doing this thing or like oh let me try to do this thing like, i'm gonna do this thing now and you're totally right about that it was definitely in the this thing category whatever it was um i hadn't Man. really thought about that though as far as trying to come up with new stuff being the reason that it takes longer yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, for me, for example, like if I want to sit down and make hip hop beats, which I do all the time, like I, that's like a really fast process for me. You know, it might turn out great. It might turn out pretty good. It might turn out all right. But like either way, like I don't spend a ton of time on it. I just bang out ideas so I can bang out more ideas. But like when I'm actually trying to write like a really original full piece of EDM composition that, you know, I am, you know, not just providing a canvas to hopefully inspire an artist to write a song on, like I am doing the canvas and the song and man, like not necessarily trying to stick to any one genre and trying to come up with the cool mashup of my influences and my vibe. And hopefully it also fits like my brand core image of like whatever I'm building. And that, that part is what like really, it's taken up so much of my writing time. I feel you, Evan. It's like, man, like just getting that idea that's like, oh, this is, I can make this into an entire song arc and uh, and get that sound that really is worth listening to for most of three minutes. How's your library organization, Luke? Better than it's ever been and plenty of room for improvement. Cool. I found like once you have those standard folders, I've started making like more, not obscure, but more like unconventional sort of stuff. So like 
once I have like my drums, folders and all that kind of stuff, I've started thinking more in terms of like feels or moods or like types of sound, like zaps. And I'll just throw in anything remotely lasery or zappy just because I like that texture. And then there might be a texture of like uh, metallic or something. And so that folder is just filled with that kind of stuff. And so you sort of have like Dylan's idea of a sparks folder, but the sparks could be anything from like a sample to a drum, to a effects, to a Foley, to an ambience, but it all like needs to have this characteristic. And um, one thing I did with the Tesco brand and as I'm thinking moving forward with this project, I'm going to do again because it was so useful, but writing down a few words to describe your sound, you could describe it by genre if you want. And that's a perfectly good folder to have. If you're like, my sound is very core influenced by house, let's say it's worth having a house folder. But if you're like, man, I like, I want my shit to sound like an acid trip. I would make a folder called acid trip and throw in like any effects racks or samples or anything that remotely remind you of an acid trip and start thinking in more like abstract creative terms. Yeah. I like that a lot. I definitely have found that organizing my library, not by what it is by, but by how I use it has been, was like a revolutionary thing for me like a few years ago, but I, I've had it mostly the same since then. I mean, I've updated it and added, you know, different categories, but I haven't really thought of revamping it in that kind of oblique way where it's like metallic things and like broken things and like spinny things or just like coming up with weird categories for mm-hmm. the sounds. And then like, because that'll like, you could use a spinny thing in every genre imaginable, but if you're not thinking of things as like trap horns or whatever, you right. know, you're, and you're like, just like, oh, let me add this weird palette of sounds with this weird palette of sounds, you're like less likely to come up with a combination that you've done your before yourself or that other people are doing a lot. Um, I like I like that. Totally. One thing too that you said is like thinking of, of what the sound is rather, or like, would you say thinking of how it's used rather than exactly what it is? How you use it rather than what it is. I really like that. And that's something I've been trying to instill in people, especially like the way I, um, my projects always end up when I mix them. I like to think of things just being as like five or six elements rather than a hundred channels, let's say, right? In the same way that I don't really give a shit that my desk over here is four legs and a middle piece and some screws and a desk. It's more of like all these parts come together to create a desk. In the same reasoning, all these parts come together to create drums, let's say. And so on the surface level, it might look like my projects are like just drum, drums group, subgroup, synths group, vocal group, effects group, whatever. Those are like generally the main five. But one thing I, I've noticed with um, ninjas and I try and really like instill in them to, to break out of this sort of mindset of like a sound is just exactly what it is, is like 
So yeah, my groups on surface level might just say drums, but it's like, okay, what is, what is the overall mission of all of these elements coming together? Like, what are they trying to contribute to collectively to achieve? Well, they're trying to be the rhythmic guide of your song. So what does that mean? Well, it means it needs to be punchy. It needs to have transients, right? So it's like, if you have a symbol in there that you want to feel more horizontal and washed out, and you're putting in the drums group, well, what if, you know, you have a teensy bit of transient, transient shaping on that group just to collectively bring the kit to the front of the mix? Well, then you don't want this symbol that isn't contributing to the rhythmic guide to be in that group and get that sort of processing. Or likewise, if you have a laser sample, a zap, and it's more so the spice section of your rhythm, well, you'll probably want to group that with the drums, even though it's not technically a drum. And so I find when you can break down each group, say a drop group, generally, I do most of the processing on the sounds individually, and then, you know, a layer of icing on top just to glue everything together, maybe some compression and stuff like that. And it takes the elements from being here in the mix right to the forefront. So... You know, if you have your drop basses cut out for a moment and they checkerboard with a vocal chop or they checkerboard with some random sound, it makes so much more sense to be like, okay, no, these are creating some sort of vertical checkerboard that is serving as the main, I can't even say melodic nowadays per se, but let's say the main like vertical movement, right? And it's like if the vocal chop is part of that, well, throw it into the drop group, you know, same with any other random elements. It depends so much more on what they're serving overall to the track. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's a really important point that a lot of people overlook is that if you have sounds that play next to each other, they need, they need to have similar texture frequency response. Like if you have a really thin bass and then all of a sudden there's this big full one and it's like, well, these are different sounds and different groups and I, you know, organizationally, like it makes more sense to have these. Like, dude, it doesn't sound right. <laughs> like, you totally. know, like everything that is next to each other has to be similar enough that it's not jarring. Um, and I love, that, I love that you brought that up because it is <clears throat> one of those rules that people hear and they're like, all my vocals go my vocal group and all these things go here. And it's like in before you're thinking about the final product and what is best for the final product. And you're more thinking about what are the rules and how do I not break them to make a good thing that people are going to think is good. Like that, that kind of mindset basically removes you from thinking about the simple solution which is no just put all the stuff that plays next to each other in the same group like i frequently will have like a distorted vocal or something that ends up in the bass group because it makes more sense to have it there um again it, it goes back to knowing the rules and know why to break them yeah for okay. sure man and like i love tesco's point about what is this for? Like, what, not just what is it called? Technically, this is a vocal chop, but does it make more sense to have it in the bass group? Is it just a, ooh, that really is just like a little grunt that's part of your drum spice? You know, like, what, where does this really belong and where 
in your group processing is it best served? And that's one thing I really love about using that, you know, you, you have to have this mind state, but then once you can put that into something like the Skrillex mixing bus template, shouts out to Skrillex for opening that Mumbai power session for the internet and Ahi for breaking it down and then Ill Gates for actually making that for us. Uh, yeah, that's one of my favorite weekly downloads and it really, really revolutionized my mixing process. But being able to have each group that's really, I was already grouping things and I was already like halfway there on my own, but it was not coming together like that. But then being able to be like, oh, this needs to be in this group. And then it's all getting this set of effects and all has a limiter on it. So I can really control like the punch and the dynamics and the noise ceiling of this entire group of percussion sounds or this entire group of basses or this entire group of vocals at once. That's so powerful yeah. to be able to have that control. And then instead of at the beginning of your mix, yes, you're bringing things in one by one and there might be a hundred things, but at the end of your mix, like Tesco said, there's six faders. Well, let me turn down all of the drums just a little bit and turn up all of the basses just a little bit. And then now I don't have to deal that, man, I hope I'm turning them up all the exact same amount of decibels on this little fader or like yeah. typing in the number, trying to get all precise about it. Just like, no, just move the group fader and then you're there. Disclaimer. Yeah. You must get the fundamentals right first. You cannot compress out any errors in volume or anything like that. That needs to be fundamentally addressed. And I find too, when you're thinking of it in that sort of group manner, as far as like, what are the groups contributing to, to the song and not so much the elements, um, you can... And I find the concept of hierarchy super important. Ever since Dylan mentioned in that leveling weekly download, this idea of mix hierarchy. It was probably like a 10 second point in that hour long video, but I found hierarchies to be such a useful way to, for explaining these concepts to people. And one thing I find holds true is like, if you have a drum hierarchy and if you have a synth hierarchy, and for example, that might look like, you know, my kick and snare and maybe tom fills are like at the absolute forefront of this hierarchy and then the secondary elements are maybe the hats and the maybe the the more like back in the hierarchy would be like the little like percussion hits and textures and blah 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 now if you go to your synths group and you say okay lead main layer is number one in the hierarchy and then chords main layer is number one and then maybe it's lead layer two and three and then chords layer two and then whatever generally if you can structure your hierarchies well within the groups in the way that you're leveling these sounds you should be able to bring just the groups in with each other when you're doing your final mix and there should be minimal tweaking inside of the groups yeah totally i love that you mentioned the 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 Skrillex, uh, like template, by the way, because that's a perfect example of something that like, if you know what's going on, you can maximize the results very, very easily. And if you don't, you're just going to make an over limited sausage piece of shit. By the way, if any of you guys are unfamiliar with that template, or what we're talking about, um, we'll throw a link in the show notes to that. And 
probably yeah. the weekly download too, because I'm sure you guys want to know about that. But um, yeah, shouts to the weekly download. That's <laughs> been one of the biggest resources in my real. learning career. For real. Um, but yeah, like if you like, I've had multiple students um, who will just take a, a, a with limited understanding, maybe six months in with limited understanding, and try and throw their project in the Skrillex template and it doesn't always yield better results if you don't understand a how the routing is working i had i had i had one student who routed everything to the sends and also to the master um per, you know like that's easy mistake to make but yeah man <laughs> that'll uh, mess things up yeah but you got to understand how the thing works and then you can maximize the result but the that that clipping template is fucking amazing for getting mm -hmm. out. shout outs g clip free plugin super <laughs> useful and yeah. i love too that it's a all-in-one and you have the visual of the input the visual of the output you can perfectly see like where the average signal volume is where the extremities are and just clip those off it's yeah. so good yo Nicola, when are we going to get the T-clip, dog? I know you're working on that clipper. Oh, the distortion. Yeah, I want that T-clip, oh, dog. It's going to happen soon. I've been I've been caught up with all the other accountability stuff, or not doing the accountability stuff, I suppose. It's been a busy while, but um, definitely soon, man. I want to I wanna overuse and abuse a T-clip without understanding how it works on all my projects. And yeah, shouts to Sausage Fadner. Yeah. <laughs> episode episode one throwback. If you haven't heard that one, go back in the archives, y'all. <laughs> throwback. <laughs> Man, yo, that all this kind of is bringing up this concept for me of like uh, having a top-down understanding of why you're making the moves in your song. Like it's so easy to look at all of the faders and all of the buttons and all of the VSTs and all of the tracks and be like. There is so much going on here. But if you keep that overarching mentality of what is the song actually trying to show a listener? Well, okay, I want them to be able to dance to it. So like you mentioned, that drum group being cohesive is and punchy is going to be really important and having the right amount of dynamics in it so that your kick and your snare are really letting you know where to move your feet. And then your hi-hats are kind of like letting you know how you can play with your hands. And then okay, this is the actual most important instrument in this section. And my main goal is make that first in the, in the volume, make that first in the, in the sitting on top of the frequency spectrum and, and do not let, and mix that first priorities here, mix that first, make sure it sounds lit. And then your job is to, as you go down the list of less and less important elements, don't let any of the less important elements step on those earlier, more important elements while you're mixing. That happens so much in, you know, my old mixes all the time for sure. And so many of my students, it's like, oh yeah, okay, you started with those and then you just started throwing stuff on. You're like, oh, I can't hear that. Let me turn it up. Now I can't hear this. Let me turn this up. And, and then all of a sudden it's like, yeah, but those first four things you mixed were way more important. Now the kick, the snare, the sub, and the lead line are buried behind FX risers and shit. Totally. Nobody ever needed to write a song about an FX riser. It's a background element for a reason. Well, and to me, it sort of signifies like this. 
I know they're not consciously thinking of it in this way, but to me, it's like the way I see it is like you're an audio shaman leading people, grabbing them by the hand and guiding them through this auditory trip, let's call it. And if they hear too many voices, they're going to freak the fuck out. So you need to make sure the message is loud and clear. Now, the thing is, when you're introducing this riser and it's 15 dB louder than it needs to be, that's like somebody enjoying their time and then something just jumps out of the bush and it's like, booga booga, I'm a riser and I'm here and you need to know I'm here. And it's like this very like... It just comes across as if the producer felt like that riser was the absolute most important thing and it needed to steal the spotlight from everything. And a good analogy I like to use with my students is like... Wait, better than the Ooga Wooga analogy? <laughs> Are you kidding me? A close I, second. I already want that on a t-shirt. <laughs> I am Ooga Wooga, I'm a riser. Ready for this shit. That's here. So, um... I view um, the main elements sort of like the main characters in a movie, right? And the arrangement of your structure is, is, is the plot line of the story. And now it's like, imagine the movie 300. If all 300 people in that army were a main character, that movie would still be going on to this day. It's way too chaotic. There needs to be two main characters and 298 secondary characters or just totally background characters that appear for like a split second in one scene, one time to make, to give context to the main characters. Or another analogy you could think of is like those breakdancer groups. There might be like 30 Jabberwockies, but they're, they're, all 30 of them aren't trying to steal the spotlight at once. One might come out or maybe two might come out and be in the spotlight and all the other people in the back are just doing like simplified versions of whatever the people in the front are doing just to set context to the spotlight yes and that that is the perfect those two together are really powerful visuals to remind us that the way people actually listen to music is not like we might as the producer paying attention to all 100 sounds in the song they are listening to one thing at a time and there's a lot of extras in the background that just make this look like a real place. Yeah. You know, it's like, okay, this is actually a thing. There's enough happening. There's a, there's ambiance, there's little tiny spicy percussions, but really I'm listening to that crazy lead baseline, or really I'm listening to the rapper or the singer. And then everything else is providing context. Uh, like what's behind the Mona Lisa? I had to Google it the other day because I was curious. Like, wait, no, wait, what is behind? Is she there's indoors? Like trees, is there's she like outdoors? trees and like a field, right? There's like a field yeah. kind of on the right, some trees and some like shit. mountains and a river, okay. some trees. Yeah, it's a landscape behind her. But I didn't know if she was indoors or outdoors for real. Yeah, I know her smile. Do I, do I get a C? I mean, yeah, you're pretty close, man. Yeah, I'd say that's C-level C <laughs> material. I didn't do that good. I, I legit, I was like, I'm a guest before I click search on google and i thought she was indoors i thought it was like, gonna be a wall with some you know medieval whatever on it but nope turns out i guess renaissance but hey renaissance man leonardo what's up but shout out it doesn't matter we were all looking at her smile that's true 
She could have been indoors. It would have been just as dope of a painting. He just picked outdoors because that's what he picked. Uh It doesn't matter. We were looking at Mona Lisa. Well, everything behind her made it just not her on a white background being like, why? Wait, why is this girl in like a white void? Like this is some sort of weird commercial. Yeah, (laughs) stuck in purgatory. I, I remember the first time that I realized this concept works when I accidentally made my chords like minus 30 and then I had like four like lead melody type uh, layers playing that were like I had this big lead melody and then like in my amateur state I would have been like yep the chords need to be just as loud and I accidentally had the chords at minus 30 and then all of a sudden I was like holy shit, why does this sound so good? I can he- the lead is so clear, and I get the emotion from the chords, but wait, I can barely hear the chords. What? I need to turn those up, and I turn the chords way up, like to minus 10 or whatever, and I'm like, wait, that actually made it worse. Wait, the chords don't need to be that loud? They can be kind of in the background, and it makes it better? Mind blown. Side note, your second analogy was better than the Ooga Wooga, and hats off to you, golf clap. Um, Also, it had the word Jabberwocky, which is definitely about as cool as Ooga Wooga. You know, I feel like I still might want Booga Wooga on a t-shirt. Yeah, I definitely do. I definitely do. Another um, another just point I want to add to that is like if you see a Jabberwocky's routine, it's not just that one or two of them are the mains throughout the whole thing, right? It's like when you see these breakdancer crews and you can think of this as like, as they're dancing section to section in the song, think of your main elements in your DAW, right? It's like maybe for the drop or maybe for the hook, these three are like the elements, but it's like, well, let's say it's a drop. Well, in the verse, do you need drop basses up in the front competing with the vocals? No. So no, the same way fact, they please don't <laughs> exactly. So in that same way they organize their routine, it's like maybe one person comes up and then he goes back and joins the group, and then two people come out and then they do a little thing and then they rejoin the group, right? And then maybe it's like whatever. It's like they they do their own little thing for a bit and then another person or two come out to the spotlight. And it's not always fixated on one person, but even as it's changing, there is still very direct focus on, on, you know, the main part of that routine. Yeah. You, you are giving us such a good visual metaphor of what checkerboarding actually is. It's like literally... I can't watch what 30 dancers are doing at once. It's impossible. I can watch what one dancer is doing for sure. I can watch what two dancers are doing if they're doing it together. I'm still going to miss parts. Mm -hmm. Three dancers were pushing it. Past that, I am mostly just ignoring the rest of those people all doing the same move in the background. Yeah. It just looks cooler because they're back there. Right, because but when I, I look, when I look through those people, it's not just an empty stage full of nothing. But if it was your tenth time seeing the routine, and likewise tenth time listening to the song, now you know what the main part is, and now you're sort of digging in the background, mm-hmm. you know, and you might pick up on some new stuff. 
Yeah. Um, and Dylan also had a quote that he gave me back in the day when um, we were working with him one-on-one where he said, if everything is loud, nothing can be loud. It's the differences in volume that make the loud things seem loud. And I've extended that one step further. And if you replace loud with stereo width or reverb or whatever, you also need to keep in mind there needs to be a stereo width hierarchy. There needs to be a reverb hierarchy. There needs to be order. And some things need to have more of some stuff and some things need to have less of some stuff. And if you can ensure that, you can make sure that your track is actually evolving and breathing over the course of a section. The same way we start off as children, mature, and then sort of regress in our older age. It's like intro, hook, outro. It needs to be starting off smaller than the most climactic section, and it needs to die off relative to the most climactic section. Yeah, definitely. I think that uh, a random side note that I uh, was thinking of in regards to your oogity woogity with the risers. Um, that one really like hit it really home, resonated. <laughs> Love it. Um, I like gibberish. What can yeah. I say? You also need to EQ your risers. Uh, most people just throw a riser in and assume like that it's doing its job. That's me. Like, nah, dog. In the Jabberwockies <laughs> reference, like that riser who's in the background, he ain't waving his hands all over the place. He's doing very <laughs> muted movements. EQ out the pain zone out of that distorted riser. Uh, so your lead that you think is actually causing a harshness issue no it's that it's those six risers that you stacked on top of each other and left untamed i partly agree i think a lot of that can be remedied by very careful leveling and more often than not i find the problem the two main problems i see with people's effect sections and they're they're related is um This is such a small nerdy point, but it makes a huge difference. And people are usually like, are you really fixating on that? And I'm like, yes, I'm fixating on that because it's important. And what I'm talking about is if you unintentionally don't dissipate energy from one of these elements, let's say you have a downlifter and that downlifter trails off into absolute silence or your reverb decay tail isn't long enough and you get a few milliseconds of silence here or there, that shit sounds really whack and really amateur. And so I found setting up some sort of baseline level of floor noise at say minus 55, minus 50 dB. And then point two is like really utilizing that minus 60 to like minus 35, 40 dB range as well as everything above is just that area. I mean, I've even done collabs with people where they scoff and they're like, why would you do that? You can't even hear elements that low. And it's like, yeah, maybe, but you can feel it as soon as I take this group off. And when that riser dies out, I sort of think of my effect sections as this like amorphous blob. And maybe like a little part will like stick out like an amoeba or something. Maybe like whatever, you get the riser, but it always dissipates back into this baseline level. And it's like the it's like the AC unit running in the background. 
It's so quiet and so consistent, you tune it out. But then say you have a section where you want a checkerboard and you want the reverb of your drop bass to really fill out the stereo width. Well, now suddenly you can checkerboard silence from almost silence to silence. And that opens up actually a great deal of room for that reverb to feel even bigger. And now you have all sorts of checkerboarding opportunities with the the extreme end of your mix in the low, low decibel range. Yeah. Yeah, man. You bring up a good point about something I also don't think people even think about or consider much is that like one thing that I'll do on almost every track is have some sort of like ambience or vinyl crackle. And I will have that at like minus 40 dB if I'm thinking about what the actual final dB level of that track is. It's probably like minus 40. And you probably aren't ever going to pick it out. But if you took it off, you would you definitely say this record feels more sterile. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's those those little tiny things that um, that bring up that little noise floor so that like silence is awkward unless it's very intentional. Mm-hmm. And those little those little details that just remove remove your your conscious thought of like, why does this feel like so sterile? Like if you could just do those little details, like all you're thinking about is how good the song is rather than like, what is that? What's missing? Like, why am I not hearing this thing? Right. Um, yeah. And that's why people love old, old recordings so much is because it went through tape and then it got put on vinyl and both of those add a really pleasant noise floor. And I've heard multiple of my favorite producers say this kind of thing. Like once back in the day, I I got to hear like a breaking down the beats thing live with just Blaze, who, you know, has worked with uh, Jay-Z and every other huge hip hop artist. And he said, like, there's this thing in uh, that, you know, that uh, Jay-Z song, PSA, allow me to reintroduce myself. My name is Hove. And in the intro, there's a part where, he had been in Japan on tour with somebody and just took out his sound recorder and recorded what it sounded like to be in this super quiet park in Japan. And he put that layered under in a way that you can't really know that it's there. And he's like, yo, like it's there. And you, nobody in the world knows it's there except you guys who I'm telling right now. But if you mute that track, it just sounds wrong. So I left it in. And another one of my favorite producers that's actually on a like on an, a YouTube ad for um, Arcade by Output, and it's wow. Rance from 1500 or Nothing, who also works with Jay-Z's, uh, the drummer of Jay-Z's touring band, um, and a super producer as well. Um, he says in that, like, he takes his vocal chop, and he's, like, makes his line with it, and he's like, yeah, that's really cool. And then he, like filters it and reverbs it out and turns it down so it's almost not in the beat anymore he's like yeah there it is now it's just felt not heard that's how it's got to be sometimes you just have to shit that's have shit that's felt not heard and it's really echoing what i've been hearing from both of you guys right now so it's making me smile like yeah my guys know what's up love it i think it's worth noting too this works really well if you have minimal beats and i think that's why a lot of let's say amateur trap hip hop producers 
right subpar beats compared to like if you look at a lot of the old boom bap beats they had a very specific energy and rawness to them and a lot of that came from all of that floor noise that would get introduced from chopping up these samples and if you have a very very simple beat and you just want it to be like bare bones for the artist i would suggest adding that sixth layer of rain or campfire or waterfall or whatever and tuck it back like minus 50 db minus 40 and that will make your song automatically sound much more intentional much more full yeah yeah man i had a beat i made uh in new york and i just like literally like stuck my phone out the window and recorded three minutes of what it sound like on Ditmars Boulevard in Queens. The beat's called Ditmars, and it's tucked in there, just in the back. And every once in a while, you're like, oh, that's a cool little effect you added there. Like, nope, that is a garbage truck squeaky brakes. Nice. <laughs> Love it. You're saying, Evan? Uh, yeah, I was just saying, shout out uh, Windy Plains Ambience, shout out Spanish <laughs> Campfire Ambience, shout out... Uh, New Ch- York playground ambience shout out rainy day ambience through my window dump trucks go get yourself some ambiences man you you you, depending on the vibe of the song i will literally just be like this feels like a rainy day and then that low layer is a sample of someone recording rain through their window you're not going to hear it anyways but like it's those little details that like add to the emotion that you feel but not hear hundred percent. I think too, it's worth noting that electronic music is relatively new. And so, you know, up until this point in time where electronic music was being created, correct me if I'm wrong, but I cannot think of a single genre that wasn't performed in some sort of live setting. And so immediately, as soon as you're actually playing in a, in a physical space, you get this sense of depth. And that's what's lacking, I think, with a lot of people's electronic music compositions is it sounds very two-dimensional and they don't get that full aspect of depth because they're not thinking about what environment is my song taking place in. And it kind of ties in with the folder structuring we talked about earlier. But I always tell people too, like when you're deciding your brand, think about what environment this takes place in. It's like, yeah, yeah, cool. It's DJ music, festival music, whatever, or it's radio music, whatever. But like, take it further. Does this happen in heaven? Does this happen in the midst of an acid trip? Does this happen? Like, where is the setting? What's the vibe you're trying to get across? And come up with a place. It could be a fantasy location. It could be a real location, but have a folder that helps you get that point across and if you can get your stuff in a 3d space it automatically sounds much more alive because now it sounds like it it was performed and it exists in a living environment amen yeah i think that's like also just a a perfect thing to think about for your brand right like what moment do you envision this song to be played in you know like for a club track you're you're like a techno track like you're envisioning like a dark club in berlin and like just a strobe you know if you're 
big EDM guy, you're thinking of Coachella and like a bunch of rave kids going crazy. For myself, it's like music that I want to listen to while I'm doing shit outdoors. Like what song would narrate like me going snowmobiling? Like that, I feel like that is the inspiration for a lot of the stuff that I make. And having that like, what what does this song do? And like, why does this song exist? Um, helps guide some of those seemingly less important decisions on like texture and the background sounds and that kind of thing. Um, so just coming up with that framework for yourself can definitely help yeah. guide some of those ambiguous decisions that you have to make. As soon as you think of it in that way, like for you, for example, it's like, you just stated, I want to make music that you'd listen to outdoors. It's like that automatically gets me thinking about all the possibilities. Like, let me make a riser that's a rev of my motorcycle. Or let me layer up my drums with like twigs snapping and leaves, like dry leaves crackling and stuff like that. That That is all so, so, so fundamental for you getting a unique sound. Sound I feel like can be boiled down to texture, honestly. I know that's a very like uh, broad generalization, but if you had to think of it in one way, obviously there's a lot more factors, the way you produce and, and, and certain tendencies and so on. But if you can just get like a textures folder and think of what sort of environment is my song taking place and then uniquely incorporate those textures, bam, you're 90% of the way there. Yeah, man. And just all this is really reminding me of that sweet, sweet mixtape Rip Kenny curated <laughs> Get Outdoors mixtape. <laughs> and how cool that entire thing, like how it came together as a narrative of, a, of an actual story that like is a journey and every part of it's like some kind of crazy outdoor moment and it all flowed together and there was so many like cool textures and vibes to that song or uh, for the for the whole mixtape i mean and for each song in it man look shouts out to that and that video that professor lightwave did oh for God, it is so, so lit too i'm gonna go back and watch that again that thing yeah. i gotta like I it forgot about okay so when i came up with the concept for that i was like wait music plus video plus actually written story like this is dope i'm gonna do a bunch of these and then i didn't do a single one after that because it was so much work to come up with and conceptualize start to finish an arc of a story with songs that fit that and then i like the the visual aspect wasn't even in my hands and it was still like an inordinate amount of work to come up with something that I was happy with. Um, but fuck, now reminiscing on it, man, I want to do that shit again. Yeah, man. I think it'd probably be way easier for you to do over the course of like an EP that's all your music as opposed to like a 20 song mixtape that's 20 different artists that then you're like, okay, out of all the music I just got handed, what is a story I can glean from this as opposed to like, I have a story in mind and I have these songs and I can marry them. Yeah, that is, that, that's a fantastic. I'm so glad that you brought that up because now that really makes me want to make an album. That's like, like has a story has video content from like shit 
outdoors. Like I have plenty of random footage that I could use as like bits of story and have someone else that's better at editing video come and put the final touches on everything and have like a whole journey. That sounds cool. I think it would be really epic too. And I'm sure you have a bunch of footage of outside. Just do like brief little interludes and like make the main focal point that of like just a random clip where you're just like exploring and maybe your friends are talking in the background or like I know on the Jack U project, I think there was a song or maybe even a few where they just had like random telephone conversations or just like random nights out, I guess, when they were shooting the shit and they haven't have an audio recording and they just tacked it on to the end of the song. Like stuff like that is just so raw and, and helps you connect on that human level. Yeah. Personal. Yeah. And I loved how the, the videos they did for that project also reflected that it's like literally like it's cuts between it's like, here's us on stage at a festival. Here's us eating dinner. Here's us snowboarding somewhere randomly in the world. Here's us like in this club. Here's us on a different stage at a different festival. And it's like, wow, it's like, I really felt like I was along for the ride, sonically and visually. And uh, I could see that working super well for a Rip Kinney project. Just all sorts of cool, like snowmobiling, hiking, whitewater rafting, whatever the fuck you like to do, man. It's all gonna look so sick when it's all like cut together with a whole narrative. I'm excited for that. Ideas uh, as bubbling, totally. bubbling, bubbling, bubbling. And that's why you should have good music friends. <laughs> they can remind you of the cool shit you did so you can do it again. Totally. Uh, yeah. And on that note, we're signing off. Thank you guys for listening. Thanks, friends, for being friends and being friendly with our friendship conversations today on the uh, um, human. What is it again? Woo! The Woo Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. <laughs>